MSW Media. Citizens in Wisconsin were forced to choose between their health and exercising their right to vote. How can we make sure everyone is able to vote safely in November? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I speak with Patty, I want to recognize our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Michelle Dew, Eric DeWurst, Edie, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hungsberg, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. All one word. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Patty, before we get to our guest, who is going to tell us a lot and inform us on this topic, I have to say the reason that this, to me, is such an important issue is I really felt heartbroken for a lot of these people in Wisconsin who had to face a very tough choice. They had to basically put their lives and their health at risk to go and vote. Otherwise, they couldn't exercise their right to vote. It's a crazy choice and something that shouldn't be acceptable in our country. And, you know, this is a big conflict. I think we touched on this a little bit, you know, in regards to the race that I ran uh, in the 19th District of Illinois for the House seat. You know, we were coming down into the two weeks. We knew that that people were starting to worry, that they were trying to make plans as to what our reaction was going to be. And it's very hard to encourage people to exercise their right to vote, not just their their right to vote. And I posted this in, on our Twitter account is that uh, it's also our responsibility and it's necessary for democracy to have our votes reflected, to have our voices heard. So it's a, it's a struggle. And, and we also worry about what the down ballot candidates are going to do in this general election, because, you know, there are going to be a lot of people that come out to vote against Trump, but are they going to be inspired by Biden? Uh, you know, is the hurdle of having a mail in your ballot going to be something that prohibits people from being able to do it? And I know that there's going to be a lot of conversation that you're going to have as far as like what states laws are like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people are forgetting how this is going to impact a whole host of races. You know, I know um, there are people who are running for district attorney or, or uh, you know, people who are running for, as you point out, state representative. And for all these races, there's just a lot of races in the ballot in November. Um, and we have, a, you know, I think a number of things that we're trying to balance. We want everyone to be able to vote in a way that's convenient to them. We want them to never have to make a choice between risking their health or their life and having to vote. We want to make sure, of course, it's accessible to people with disabilities who, who may not uh, be able to vote by mail uh, as easily as we are. Um, we want to make sure that, that that system is secure. We want to make sure this is able to done efficiently. And we want to make sure that there's the funding and organization needed to make sure that you can pull all of that off. All of that is definitely not a uh, uh, an easy feat, but it's something that we need to focus on. And it's the right thing to do. And w- what's bothering me so much, Patty, is just seeing how it's turned into such a partisan 
uh, issue. This shouldn't be a partisan issue. Everyone should have the opportunity to vote. Really, that's a core of what our country is about. Absolutely. I mean, that's the entire basis of our democracy. And and I also you know, want people to keep in mind that I think now more than ever, it's important to do research on the down ballot uh, candidates, because in a situation like this, you know, the incumbent is favored uh, regardless of party because they have the infrastructure campaigning in the next six months is going to be insane. It's going to be very, very hard for those that don't have the resources. Fundraising is going to be impossible. You can't go door to door. You can't have rallies and events, at least not for the next, you know, several months, if throughout the rest of the the, uh, this campaign. So it's going to be a lot of I think it's going to be it's going to be a lot of pressure and I think responsibility of people to be more informed. Without a doubt, and I've seen it. You know, I've started to get uh, as as the primary has been over involved in the Biden campaign, and it has been interesting to see them adapt to this uh, to this uh, new reality. All the virtual events that they're having, and you know, uh, virtual town halls, virtual fundraisers, virtual everything is a, it's definitely a challenge for any campaign. And we really don't know, I think, what the impact will be. Yeah, I I just encourage everybody to make sure they know what their options are. So I'm so glad that they're listening to this podcast. Absolutely. So now let's turn to the interview I recorded with our guest, Trevor Potter. Uh, Trevor Potter uh, is the former commissioner of the United States Federal Election Commission, so he knows a whole lot about this topic. Uh, He's also the founder and president of the Campaign Legal Center, which is a nonprofit organization that tries to promote uh, fair elections. Uh, And and it's worth noting uh, that Mr. Potter is a Republican who is the general counsel to John McCain's two presidential campaigns. So this is, uh, I think, an issue that Hopefully all of us can agree on, and I find uh, Mr. Potter and his uh, insights into this very informative. So let's bring in yeah, Trevor Potter. Welcome back to the podcast, Trevor. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Good to be with you. So I think the recent election in Wisconsin after the Supreme Court decision really drove home for everyone the challenges associated with conducting an election in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, no matter what happens in the months to come, this is still going to remain a concern in the general election in November. You know, what lessons have you drawn? What what concerns do you have about conducting the general election this year? Well, the first thing is that I think it's important to recognize there's a there is a crucial difference between these primary elections, where in Wisconsin there was a debate about moving it and whether to conduct it then or later, and other states like Ohio have moved them. There's a difference between that and the November 3rd general election, which really can't be moved. First of all, it's a matter of federal law, not state law, so it's not within the control of the states to move it. And secondly, the federal law that specifies the date of the uh, general election in November is predicated on the constitutional deadlines and the electoral college deadlines that follow to have the electoral college votes counted, the new Congress seated, uh, any challenges resolved, and the new president sworn in January 20th. And and January 20th is sort of the ultimate drop-dead date because the president's term under the Constitution ends on that date at noon. So the system has to have produced a successor by then. So all of that's a a long way around pointing out that 
the November date really is going to have to go forward in November. And therefore, the lessons we need to learn from Wisconsin are how to make it run more smoothly, how to avoid the sort of chaos voters in Wisconsin experience trying to figure out whether they could vote at home, whether they had to go to the polls, which polls they would go to, what to do about the governor's order to stay at home while the Supreme Court said the polls were open, uh, all, all the sorts of things we saw there that you would not want repeated and which drove down turnout uh, in Wisconsin and denied citizens a, a right to vote. Wow, you raised some excellent points. I know there was a lot of concern when the pandemic first started becoming an issue and people were saying, well, we'll Will, the, will President Trump cancel the election? And, of course, you're exactly right that his term ends constitutionally when it does, no matter what. Um, and, uh, you know, the people who would be succeeding him, of course, they're like, the, for example, the Speaker of the House, uh, they, you know, her term also uh, ends if there aren't new elections for Congress. So this has to go forward. And I, and I will say the um, elections that we have uh, – we saw in Wisconsin had some – Pretty significant consequences, you know, some in terms of public health, because there was, in fact, a, uh, a an uptick in infections in Wisconsin after that primary election. But then there was also some consequences. Uh, as you point out, there was a lot of confusion. Some people didn't get their mail-in ballots in time. Some people weren't able to have their votes counted. Some people were afraid of their health, presumably, and were not able to uh, go to the, the to the polls. And you know, there there has to be a better way to do this. One one thing a lot of our readers are, are talking about, or excuse me, our listeners are talking about, is mail-in ballots. And and how is is that part of the solution? And uh, if so, what, how how would that uh, how would that work? Right, I think it clearly is part of the solution. the 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 solution starts with advanced planning. Uh, the problems in Wisconsin were made significantly worse by the confusion over what the rules would be when ballots would be due, but but it was predictable in Wisconsin, and it is predictable for the whole country in November, that there will be a rush, a, a push for absentee voting, uh, do, being able to vote at home and either mail it in or drop it off, uh, as most uh, states that have mail-in balloting do still have drop-off locations. People can leave their ballots. So, what's needed here is advanced planning. And and that the, when that didn't happen in Wisconsin, uh, one of the things we saw was a huge last-minute demand for absentee ballots, which are permitted under Wisconsin law without excuse. So people ask for them. Of course, who would want to go vote? at the polls in person when you're being ordered to stay home and there is a life-threatening disease out there that you don't want to get. So the old election number, I believe, was about 80,000 absentee ballots in the primary in 2016, and it was a million one requested ballots this year. So the system buckled under that last-minute request. That getting enough ballots printed, getting them to the post office, overwhelming the post office, getting them out again at the last minute. There were reports after the election that there were uh, whole containers of ballots at the post office, uh, unclear whether they were unmailed, undelivered, what happened. So you need advanced planning. You need enough ballots printed, 
Uh, that requires contracts with printers in advance. You need to give the post office enough time to plan for this. People should order them early enough. All these sorts of things are what's going to have to happen in November. Now, that doesn't mean that the whole country is going to vote 100% by mail because of the pandemic. First of all, there's probably not the capacity for that. Secondly, there are some states that make it much harder than Wisconsin did to vote by absentee ballot. Uh, you may have to send in a form and request the absentee ballot. Uh, some states still require an excuse to vote absentee, i.e., you have to say, I'm going to be out of the state or I am unable to go to the polls because of illness. And, and some of that's being litigated now in a range of states around the country where voters are saying, wait a minute, being afraid of illness or not wanting to get the virus at a polling place should be sufficient to give me a medical excuse. And some courts are agreeing with that. So I think we're going to see a situation where voting by mail is one of the principal ways that Americans are going to vote in November. Not the only one, because some people uh, will have handicaps that mean they have trouble voting by mail. Uh, people who can't see are going to prefer to go and vote on a machine that has Braille or uh, with voter assistance, which may not be possible at home alone. So they're going to see some uh, continued in-person voting, and some states probably are going to emphasize that more than others. One aspect of that is what's called early voting, which means in addition to Election Day, states are setting up big voting locations where you can have lots of space between people and doing a much smaller number of them over the weekend before so that voters can drive over on a Saturday morning, maybe do it at the curbside, get the ballot handed to them through their car window, vote it, and, and give it back or stick it in a box at curbside, uh, or get it at home and drive it to an early voting location and drop it off if they don't trust the mail, which makes sense because another issue voters have is, uh, is there enough time to get their ballot back? Some states require that the ballots be just postmarked before Election Day. Others say they have to actually be in the hands of election officials by Election Day, and voters mailing that on a Saturday may not know if it gets there or not. So having this range of options for voters is, is best for the voters because they have a choice, and it's best for the system because then you don't have a wave all putting pressure on one piece, whether it is long lines on election day for in-person voting, as we saw in Wisconsin, or overwhelming the post office. If you can spread it out with a couple ways of voting, that's going to be better for everybody. Uh, a number of our listeners have, you know, point, have mentioned and pointed out that there are some states that have successfully had widespread mail, uh, vote by mail, for example, the state of Oregon. What can we learn from the experiences of those states? Uh, is that sort of would animate some of the comments that you just had about how best to handle uh, vote by mail? Yeah, there are actually a surprising number of states who, who do a lot of voting by mail. Uh, some of them, like Oregon, started doing it and discovered citizens liked it, and they moved entirely, although there's still a fraction who don't, but they moved almost entirely to vote by mail so that People are registered to vote. They get their ballots in the mail. They return them either by mail or in one of these government uh, drop-off boxes. So that's Oregon. Then there are states like Arizona, which still officially have in-person voting, 
but they have no excuse absentee voting, and both parties have pushed it because they can get voters to vote their ballots early and not worry about an election day rush. Uh, Arizona has primaries in the summer when it's often 110 degrees, and voters would much rather be sitting at home in their air conditioning than they would going out in public. So Arizona is more than more than 50 percent at home voting. But, you know, arrive, the ballot arrives at home by mail. It goes back in, um, even though it's not an official vote by mail state. Now, they have a system there where people have been able to sign up permanently for absentee ballots. So you just send something in saying, I don't want to vote in person. Please send me my ballot every election. Uh, And they've seen that actually has an increase in voter turnout because it's so convenient for voters. Now, if you don't get your ballot or uh, something's gone wrong, you can still in Arizona go and vote on Election Day. But the majority of voters are choosing to do it by mail. So we have these models. But what what you will hear from election officials in states which haven't yet gone down that road that still require a specific reason to be absent to get a, a early ballot or a mail-in ballot is, yes, we know those models work for those states, but A, it's not our culture. B, our legislatures haven't approved us doing that. So I, as the secretary of state, don't have authority to change the law on my own. And in this day of virus, the legislature is not meeting at the moment. Plus, we're actually not set up to do it. So the amount of money and staff it will take to change a system uh, is beyond us in terms of getting this done in November. And I've talked to some of the Oregon and Washington people, and they say, you know, we did this over a period of four or five years of transitioning to mail only. So so those people will say, yes, we can do it, but it is not something that states are going to be able to go from, as it were, zero to 80 uh, in, a, in a space of a few months. It takes preparation. And and that's why I think you're going to see, particularly in those states that have only maybe 10 percent or fewer voting absentee, you're going to see a range of options for those voters because they can't just turn on a dime and have everybody vote by mail. Plus, you have another dispute here, which really is a bit of a partisan dispute between the parties, where the national Democrats, at least, are arguing that the way to do this is simply send a ballot to every registered voter. And the national Republicans are saying, we don't want to open the floodgates that way. Um, We might be okay with people voting absentee if they request a ballot, but we don't want to, in their view, sort of artificially expand the electorate by uh, making it really easy for every single voter to vote at home, whether they are focused on the election or not. Um, And so you're seeing that dispute play out in, in some states where uh, the, the, the battle is, do we just send them ballots or do we make them request a ballot and then send it to them? And that, yeah, that has a, a big difference. It's this uh, sort of behavioral economics uh, studies this issue, the issue of sort of nudging people. In other words, it's like opt in or opt out for your uh, for uh, software, things like that. You know, if it's an opt out system where everyone gets a ballot, well, you're going to have more voting on average than if than the otherwise than if you actually make people go through the trouble and impose on them the cost 
of going and seeking out this information and going out of their way to do it. And so, you know, while as a sort of general matter, we may want to we may say, well, more voting is good. We want more people involved. That is not in Republicans' uh, interests, at least on the national level. And so that's why we're seeing this dispute. Well, you know, there are two comments I have. I think you're right. You said it absolutely hit the nail on the head. The first is, of course, we've got to recognize the irony here. How can we be debating in, in, a, in a democracy, in a country, whether you call it a republic or a democracy, a country where people select their leaders and all registered voters are, are citizens who are supposed to be participating in the process? How can we be saying it's not a good thing to have more people vote? Uh, it, it, you know, there are countries like Australia that, as a condition of citizen, you are required to, by law, to vote, and you get fined if you don't vote because it recognizes the importance of that aspect of citizenship of choosing our leaders. So, I, it's really hard to, to be in a conversation where we're both acknowledging that some people think the fewer people that vote, the better. Um, that's that's not how. Uh, an election system ought to work where free people choose their own leaders. The, the other thing is, is just I'm not at all convinced that uh, it actually is a, a ascertainable partisan matter, that the more people vote, the better off the Democrats do. I know that's what President Trump said the other day, but it doesn't even, I think, square with his own election. Uh, in his election, there were a lot of voters who normally do not vote who came out because they were energized by him or they were energized by dislike of Secretary Clinton. And state by state, the Trump totals were significantly larger than the totals for Romney or McCain as previous Republican nominees. And those were people who don't ordinarily vote. So I, I just think it's wrong to, to say that if you get more voters, it, it uh, is a certain benefit for the Democratic Party. Uh, the Democrats know that, that their constituencies are hard to turn out and more likely to go out in presidential years than, uh, say, in the midterm elections. And those would be, uh, among others, uh, young people, students, etc. cetera. Um, but again, Trump did really well turning out his demographics in higher numbers than before. So I don't know what the the electorate would look like if you sent every voter uh, a a ballot and and they had the option with relative ease of voting it and and turning it back in. I, I think that's be so far unproven that it helps one party or the other. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's definitely uh, something that's unknowable to us. Although one thing's for certain, that is definitely what Trump believes uh, to be the case. Um, and one thing he started recently, because, of course, he's made a couple comments about how having more voters would hurt Republicans. But his main line lately has been that voting by mail is going to increase voter fraud or it's going to lead to voter fraud. I've seen no evidence to suggest that. And in fact, the evidence that I've seen suggests the opposite. But you, you know more about the subject than I do. What, what do you what do you understand to be the case? Well, I, I mean, I think, first of all, it's. The, the sort of caricature um, that millions of illegal voters would vote or there would be millions of fraudulent ballots is, is, is there's simply no evidence of that at all and uh, no way that could happen. What I think most people don't understand is that 
voting by mail, whether it's getting an absentee ballot and sending it back or the state just sending you the ballot, has uh, the same security provisions, some of the same provisions that voting in person does, which is the ballot only gets sent to a registered voter. When the voter fills it out, they have to include in an exterior envelope uh, enough of their personal information so that the state knows that the ballot came from that registered voter. So you put your name on the outside. Most states, you sign it. And that signature is compared to state signature records when you registered to vote, when you registered for your driver's license, whatever is on file. And, and if the signatures don't match, the states then have to pursue that and get proof that it's actually you who sent the ballot in or they won't open it and count it. Uh, other states require your driver's license number or your last four of your social security. So the idea that somebody could, let's say, raid a street full of mailboxes, take the ballots and cast them doesn't work that way because they'd have to have this personal identifying information or signature of all of the voters in, in order to, to cast those ballots. So we do occasionally see what, what I'd say are small amounts of fraud, although in a very close election in in, say, a congressional race, it can be important. In North Carolina last time, in 2018, the Republican candidate hired somebody who was famous for being a vote harvester, which means he would go around, collect ballots from people, and turn them in for them. And it turned out he was doing it fraudulently. He would go to them, get them to fill out their identifying information or sign it, and then say, I'll deliver it for you. And he would throw away the ones he thought were from Democrats, or he would say to voters, just sign here, and then I'll fill it out for you. So there was fraud. He was caught. Uh, people talked about it. There was an investigation. They had to have a new election. But again, in the scale we're talking about, that was a couple hundred people in one race, and he, he was caught. So he didn't get away with it. Um, and, and that's a very specific type of fraud that the system is designed to catch and, and did in, in North Carolina. So uh, whether it's by mail or it's in person, there is still a security system that uh, requires an identification of the voter before the ballot can get counted. It seems to me that if the concern is really about voter fraud, then you would um, allow people to vote by mail, have a system set up to ensure that during the pandemic we can expand that. And then you could have an audit afterwards where you take a random sampling of ballots and you do some follow up and ensure that they are uh, that they're accurately and, uh, you know, uh, cast with no fraud. And that would presumably uh, provide us with a high degree of confidence that the result is accurate. That's correct. That, that's that really is how it ought to work. It's it's it seems to me. I mean, the and and I'll opine on this. You don't need to. Is that it, this this is essentially just a transparent excuse that's being used to sort of cover you know cover up the fact that as you pointed out, um, you know, saying that you don't want people to vote or you want less people to vote doesn't sound good. Uh, no no one wants to get behind that. But this is something that you know gives a talking point. Uh, that people won't care whether it's true or not. It's just something that they're going to say that will you know, whatever, move the needle uh, in their direction or the in, in the way that they perceive to be the right direction. 
for them. Well, there also is a there's a debate here just quickly between, you know, should the federal government require this or uh, is this something that should be left to the states? And constitutionally, the federal government absolutely could require it. So the Constitution, as written, says the states set the time, place and manner for elections unless Congress decides otherwise. And so Congress has the option to uh, establish any of these. But that's led to a you know, a battle between people who say it should be done by each state and not by Washington, even though it's an election for, for federal office. The, the key thing that's missing here is this is going to take money. Getting people the option of voting absentee and by mail is going to be expensive for the states. And at the moment, there is no federal, almost no federal funding for it. Uh, in the first um, uh stimulus package. There, there was money, $400 million by the Senate, through the states to use any way they wanted in their election systems. But that won't even pay for the postage we're talking about here. So there's going to have to be funding to make this work for citizens. And the states are broke, meaning they all had tight budgets anyway, but now they're going to have a huge loss in tax revenue. And they aren't going to have the money it's going to take to hire the workers, get the postage, get the printers, and make this convenient for voters. So there is a urgent need for funding from the federal government to pay for what needs to be done to hold the national elections in November. The states need that funding or the promise of that funding now so that they can make all their plans and, and uh get contracts for printers and so forth. Yeah, one thing that I think most uh, citizens don't understand or know about is that, as you point out, elections are, are conducted at the state and local level. They're managed at the state and local level. And so we have this patchwork of how elections are conducted. You know, you have a federal election, uh, but nonetheless, the way it's conducted in Oregon, where a lot of people are voting by mail, can be very different than the way it's conducted in Florida or New York or Illinois. You'll even have different machines in different states uh, for in-person voting and different practices regarding the maintenance and and um, and uh, upkeep of those machines. So that's why we'll have, let's say, dimple chads in Florida, but maybe not in another state or so on. So. Uh, you know, this is the sort of thing that, as you point out, the federal government really could do something about with some funding, perhaps even tie some standards to that funding, right? They could say that that funding is conditional on certain, you know, guarantees or certain, um, you know, per, you know, certain uh, services that are offered to voters or auditing or other things. Uh, but it doesn't seem like there's energy to do that uh, at the at the national level right now. Well, there's just a dispute between the House and the Senate, between the Democratic leadership in the House and Mitch McConnell in the Senate. So nothing can happen without the consent of the Senate. And McConnell has said it's not going to happen on his watch. So I think uh, Pelosi and McConnell are butting heads on this, uh, both as to whether there should be federal funding and whether there should be any federal mandates or minimum requirements that go with it. Yeah, I have to say it's the sort of thing that just is maddening and not only to me, but to a lot of our listeners, because here this is an issue, of course, in which the the issue being debated determines who the next senators are going to be. And so essentially to do what he believes helps preserve his own majority, McConnell is going to have an election that, um, you know, that, you know, may not be run in, in the way that we all would like it to be, that would be safe for people, accessible, so on. And that may not 
um, that may ultimately backfire. It certainly did in Wisconsin for Republicans with the election of a liberal uh, Supreme Court justice and so forth. That, I think, is, is a key point, although you know, it's interesting that there are a number of Republican states that have gone to either mail-in or almost all mail-in voting. Uh, it doesn't bother them. Uh, I guess they want their voters to vote, and they assume they're going to vote Republican. Specifically, Utah has already done this. Idaho is just doing it because of the virus. Uh, they don't see a problem with, with mail-in voting. Uh, I I think where you're seeing the problem is where you have the so-called sort of purple states, the ones that are battlegrounds, where the parties are uh, trying to shape the electorate. They want their voters to vote, but not the other party's voters to vote. Uh, And and that, that, I got to say, basically, as a matter of government, really bothers me. Uh, You would hope, particularly in the middle of a virus, that, that public officials would be acting in the interests of all of their citizens and saying you have a right to vote, how do I make sure you can exercise that right safely? Uh, the, the idea that uh, you're going to send absentee ballots to, if you can shape it that way, your voters and not the other party's voters seems to be a misuse of, of uh, the trust of the, the public uh, and, and of the, uh, the governmental uh, system. Yeah, there's no question about it. It's an absolute disgrace. And really what it is is it's jerry-rigging the, um, the ground rules for our democracy. And it's the sort of thing that, you know, I think, you know, the, the Supreme Court in a different world might police, but the Supreme Court jurisprudence does not do that. So the Supreme Court has really kind of stayed hands off on these sort of things. And this ends up being a political dispute. And sometimes if you have enough power, as you point out, Mitch McConnell does, he can essentially do what he thinks is going to generate a benefit for him electorally, even if that means jerry-rigging the system. And that has been the case in other contexts as well, whether it's gerrymandering or other contexts in which it seems like the system is being skewed in, in one direction or another. But here, um, you know, it's it's potentially not only, skew, you know, uh, entrenching uh, cer- certain, uh, rep- you know, let's say in this case, potentially Senate Republicans in office, but also it- it's endangering the health of citizens. And that, to me, makes it just even worse because there are people out there, my parents, uh, parents of many people who are listening, and and there's people who are immunocompromised, people who are disabled, who it's going to be a real hardship to vote in person. And they potentially are going to have to risk, you know, be in a situation where they have to choose between risking their lives and exercising their right to vote. And that's a, a choice that no one should have to make in our country. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I, I think that most election officials agree with you as well. And so some, there may be a deadlock in Washington at the moment on some of these issues. But I think states are uh, showing some, some real progress. And, and where they're not, uh, groups like mine, the Campaign Legal Center, are pushing them. We're, we're filing suits. Uh, to make it easier for voters to participate. I mean, one of the things going on now is that uh, there are ballot initiatives being proposed by citizens, and the way they get on the ballot is they get signatures. Well, if you can't leave your house and you can't knock on someone's door and get them to sign something because they're afraid of you, uh, then you're not going to get signatures. And so there, there is a push in some of these states to allow people to sign electronically. Uh, which makes perfectly good sense because signatures are already public records, so you can check to make sure the person actually did sign it. 
whether they send it in by email or by fax or use an electronic signature on a document. There are lots of ways to do that, but some states haven't caught up with that yet and their laws don't allow it. So one of the things CLC is doing is, where necessary, pushing states through the courts to allow that. Um, and then when we get to actually signing absentee ballots, uh, one of the key things is that it's really important that if the people reviewing the signatures when they come in have a question about the signature or say, wait a minute, this doesn't look like what we have on file, then they need to tell the voter that there's a question. So the voter can say, no, it's really mine. And some states aren't set up to do that. Believe it or not, if there's a question, they basically just throw the ballot away. They never tell the voter that there was a question. And we're making sure that doesn't happen this year and that states are setting up systems to notify voters uh, if there's a question about their signature so they can deal with it. Yeah, that, that's really great work. I, I've been working locally here in Illinois with Indivisible Illinois on a on a push to try to expand vote by mail in Illinois. And it's hard, even though this is a state where I think there's widespread agreement on that, uh, you know, actually accomplishing it, as you point out, is not easy. And what you're doing, of course, is really important at the national level. And can you tell us a little bit more about what CLC is doing, what it is, and also how people who are listening to this can get involved or move the needle themselves? Sure. Uh, We're we are at the moment working very hard to ensure that people can vote safely in November. We are a nonpartisan uh, organization based in Washington. We're basically a sort of public interest legal uh, shop of, of experienced lawyers. Uh, and we've been working with state secretaries of state. We know and, and have lawyers who are expert in what all these requirements are uh, in previous elections. We have successfully sued to make sure that voters had full access to the polls, uh, that they were, in fact, able to be notified if there was a question about their signature and go in and change it. We sued Arizona and got a consent decree so that all voters in Arizona are notified if there's a question about their signature. We're we're not uh, lawsuit happy. We would love to work with and usually do work with state election officials or legislators to fix these issues so that nobody has to sue, but we have that as a, a backup if we need it. And our, our focus has been uh, making sure that money in politics is transparent. So the whole area of secret money being spent and uh, these ads that are run where you can't tell who's paying for them, the concerns about foreign interference in our election, including foreign money through these groups that don't disclose their funders, uh, but also the what we saw in 2016 with Russian interference in the election, presidential election through social media. We've worked hard on redistricting. We actually were the lawyers who took the Wisconsin redistricting case to the U.S. Supreme Court. And we are working with some of these citizen groups and states to uh, put together ballot initiatives for independent redistricting commissions so that even though there isn't a federal uh, lawsuit now that can be filed on redistricting. You can do it by uh, state ballot initiatives and have the voters say, we don't want politicians choosing their voters. We want voters choosing their politicians, which is the slogan. Uh, And therefore, we want an independent redistricting commission for our state. So we've been doing all of that. uh, And now in the, the world of the COVID virus, we are very much focused on making sure that states are doing what they need to be done so that we can vote safely in in November. 
Uh, we, we have a website, campaignlegalcenter.org, uh, which has a lot of information on these issues. And in terms of what you all can do, take a look at our website. I think that's helpful. Um, and obviously, any support people want to give us would be much appreciated because we don't have a big budget and we're a lean, mean uh, group of lawyers out there trying to work in the in the public interest. Uh, I think the other thing people can do is make sure that their members of Congress know that this is important to them uh, and that they should be supporting federal funding uh, in Washington. Uh, hearing that from people at home uh, always makes uh, a difference. It's more credible when it comes from voters than it does from uh, somebody based in Washington, D.C. Without a doubt, everyone definitely needs to uh, let their voices be heard. Please contact your senators and congressmen. Tell them how important this issue is to you so that you can vote safely in November. And check out CLC's website. Thank you so much for joining us, Trevor. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate being able to join you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. On Topic.